I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to another fabulous day in the Lord's neighborhood. And in another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page, I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host, and here is my coffee. Mmm, loving it. In the beginning, coffee. And lo, it was very, very good. I am really looking forward to getting into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to do chapter 2 today. I just felt it was time for some New Testament Gospel. We'll get back to Joshua later. So, having said that, let's jump right on into it. Chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. Now, uh, when it says he came home, it's it's very likely that Peter uh, was, Peter's home was Jesus' center headquarters, or P- Jesus' home when he was in Capernaum, because he's at Peter's house. They gathered in such... Excuse me. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above. Jesus, but, excuse me, let me reread that. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the man who was lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? What's easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. All right, first of all, big thing here. Big, this is a huge event. First of all, I want you to know that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. This is a messianic title. There would be no mistaking who he was claiming to be in the eyes of the teachers of the law. They would know that the title Son of Man is a title given, one of the names given to Messiah. So that there's that. But the other thing is, is uh, I was always curious about and did some thinking about was the fact that did Jesus use this man's paralyzed condition as a life lesson 
for these teachers of the law? I would say no. That was an offshoot. Jesus saw a paralyzed man. And what's amazing to me, what's the first thing he said to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we we could take a look at this uh, generically. Yes, we all need to have our sins forgiven in order to enter the kingdom of God. We, I, I understand that. But I can't help but wonder if there's a very specific thing in this man's life that he was uh, suffering guilt over. I don't know if there was a sin that caused him to be paralyzed. I don't know if he did something and he was injured to the point where he couldn't walk. I, I don't know. But it, Jesus doesn't, Jesus never wastes words. When he said, son, your sins are forgiven, that was what that man needed to hear. Now, what sin? I don't know. But something that ate him up, something that he was in the, that was in the forefront of that man's mind, I have no doubt that he was suffering from guilt. Why? Because this is what Jesus said. He said, your sins, they're forgiven. Wiped clean. Gone. And then these teachers of the law started to think like they did. Uh, who, who does this, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Huh. Well, he's about to tell them who can forgive sins, and they're correct. Only God can forgive sins. Guess who he says he is? He says he's Messiah. So you know that the Son of Man has authority on this earth to say your sins are forgiven. He turns to the man and says, now, pick up your mat and go home and walk. And this man, formerly lame, picks up his mat and walks home. So there's a couple couple things here. One, he's addressing the needs of this man. This man needed to be forgiven. You know, when I got saved, I've shared this to my testimony many, many times. But in, when I was in the throes of the conversion process... I was faced with my sin, and I, I can't describe it any other way except that I knew I was condemned. I knew that I deserved death. I knew that I was in the presence of a sinless God, and hell was my due reward. If the gates of hell had opened up behind me, I would have walked through with no argument because I had been found in the scales and found wanting. I knew all that, and that's without having read any Bible. When God... When God touched me, he revealed himself to me in that regard. He revealed to me my sin nature. And he revealed to me, I'm sure, only a portion of his sinless nature. And I was horrified at the difference. And I knew that I deserved death. But then when these words went through my head, but I've loved you with an everlasting love and I felt the forgiveness of God, Everything that I was that was so horrific, that was so uh, awful, that was so wicked, it was like it was just cleansed, washed away. I get goosebumps now thinking about it sometimes. And I experienced the forgiveness of God. I needed forgiveness before anything else could happen in my life. I needed forgiveness. This man needed forgiveness. And we're not just talking about the general, 
not that there's anything wrong with that. I, general forgiveness. I think I have a sense that this man suffered guilt from something in his life that caused him great pain, embarrassment, and shame. And Jesus says, your sins, they're forgiven. That is the greatest miracle here. And I have no doubt that when he said your sins are forgiven, that that man felt the same thing I felt when I realized my sins were forgiven. The things that define me as a God defier, the things that define me as an enemy of God, my sin nature, I was washed. This man was washed that moment. Jesus doesn't waste words and he doesn't use people as pawns in his game. The thing at the front was this man's sins and Jesus forgave him. And then he turns to the teachers of the law and they said, and they, they convicted themselves here because he said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And you can almost see Jesus going, funny you should ask that. I'm going to show you. I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is another name for God. So he said to the man, I'm going to show you. He told them, I'm going to show you that I have authority to forgive sins. And since by your own admission, only God can forgive sins, I'm going to do something that only God can do. Take up your mat, go home. Mm, powerful moment. Now, once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, I have to confess, I love this series on the gospel that we're watching, The Chosen. And uh, I love the depiction of Matthew. Just saying, if you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, Jewish tax collectors were hated by most Jews as traitors because of their collaboration with Roman authorities, because they were notorious for cheating taxpayers. In the eyes of the Jewish community, their disgrace extended to their families. The term could refer the, the, the term sinners could refer to truly evil people or to those like Jesus and his disciples who do not follow the law of Moses as interpreted by these Pharisees. This commentary I'm reading says the former is more likely since the disciples and Jesus are here identified are not here identified with the sinners. In other words, there's sinners eating with him and his disciples. The term was commonly used for tax collectors, adulterers, robbers, and the like. Those are the folks that were eating, that Jesus was eating with, the undesirables of society. To eat with a person was a sign of friendship and acceptance. So Jesus was breaking bread with tax collectors, adulterers, robbers, etc. at Matthew's house. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why? Does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? All right. Not all teachers of the law were Pharisees. A teacher of the law, or scribe, was a vocation, while Pharisee was a religious political party that scribes or others could join. The Pharisees were successors of the Hasidim, 
Hasidim, pious Jews who joined forces with the Maccabees, etc. They were first called Pharisees during the reign of John Hyrcanus, 135-105 BC. Although some probably were godly, Nicodemus being one, those whom Jesus criticized were hypocritical, envious, ostentatious, and formalistic. According to Pharisee, according to Phariseeism, God's grace extended only to those who kept the law. They were very, very, very exclusive. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You could almost say, I've not come to call the self-righteous, because... His message wasn't to them because it wasn't reaching them. His message reached people who were looking. There are people who are looking for Messiah. There are people who are looking for uh, forgiveness, people who are looking for acceptance. He said, that's, that's who he's coming to. People who recognize that there's something wrong, that they're sick, there's something wrong that needs to be fixed. That's who Jesus is coming to. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. All right. In a, a Jewish wedding is a time of joy, and the celebration could often last a week. It's unthinkable to fast during these festivities because fasting was associated with sorrow and this was a time of joy. He's saying, look, this is a time of joy for my disciples. I'm the bridegroom. They're the bride. This is a, not a time for sorrow. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, a new piece will pull away from the old making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In other words, there's a new thing coming, and it's going to look different from the old thing. But it's an improvement on the new thing. This is new wine. It's still wine, but it's a new, improved wine from the old wine. Jesus' ministry is not about trying to reform Judaism. That would be putting a new patch on an old garment. It's about the fulfillment of Judaism through the coming of the kingdom and the arrival and the arrival of God's end time salvation. Christianity, what became Christianity, at least in the first century, was the new Judaism. If you would, oh, if I, I, I'm sure I'm going to catch some heat for that. That's probably a poor selection of words. Christ came to fulfill what the Jewish faith was leaning in towards. The Jewish faith, the worship of Jehovah, Yahweh, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, was realized in Jesus. Jesus was what Judaism is to look like. And there were aspects of Judaism through the centuries that had, that had been added on to what the scripture brought and had turned Judaism into a national, this is my opinion, turned Judaism into a nationalistic faith that excluded, by and large, anybody who wasn't of Jewish extraction. 
God's plan from the beginning has always been to have Gentiles at the table. If you look through the history of the Old Testament, Gentiles pop in and out of the narrative all the time and, and actually become part of the bloodline of Jesus. Jesus has Gentile blood in him. He's not purely of pure, unadulterated Jewish lineage. When Israel left Egypt, Israel was not the only ones who left Egypt under Moses. There were other people outside of the Jewish genealogy, if you will, that went with them. As you read through the Old Testament, you find person after person after person of Gentile uh, background who weave their way into the narrative and become actually part of the bloodline of Jesus. So what Judaism had become by the first century was very exclusive in many regards, putting Gentiles outside the fold. That was never God's case. There is new wine coming and we're going to put it into a new wineskin. It's going to look different and taste different. It will be new. There'll be aspects of it that look the same because wineskins are wineskins, but it's going to be a new wineskin. It's going to be a new wine. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, Look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, according to Jewish tradition in the Mishnah, which is much more restrictive than Mosaic law, harvesting, which is what Jesus' disciples technically were doing, was forbidden on the Sabbath. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He's referring himself to this as a Son of Man again. Jewish tradition had so multiplied the requirements and restrictions for keeping the Sabbath that the bur burden had become intolerable for all sense and purposes. Jesus cut across these traditions and emphasized the God-given purpose of the Sabbath, a day intended for the benefit of people for spiritual, mental, and physical restoration. All right, there's um, the Mishnah is a, a collection of interpretations of scripture. Uh, they're developed within Judaism. We have the Torah written down, right? And then there was the oral Torah, which was interpretations and applications of the scriptures throughout the centuries. And eventually they, they started writing them down, especially there was an emphasis to write these oral traditions down after the uh, destruction of the temple by the Romans in AD 70 so that these teachings wouldn't be lost. But basically, they became very highly regarded, and they should be because very brilliant people wrote them. And there would be discussions of applications of the law and what it looks like in this situation, what it should look like in that situation, etc. And the danger is that that sometimes replaces what Torah plainly says. 
And it, it'd be like, uh, I've given this example before, and please, my Jewish friends, please forgive me if I'm stepping out of line here and feel free to correct me. When my children are young, I would tell them, don't put your hands on the stove burner when it's on. It'll burn you. You'll get hurt. That was the instruction. Don't touch the burners when they're on. You'll get hurt. Then perhaps come around later, I thought, you know, if if they're within six feet of the stove and they were to fall and put their hand out and touch the burner, they'd be burned. So I'm going to say, kids, don't 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 get within six feet of the stove because you might fall and touch the burner and hurt yourself. And then later on, it would be like, you know what? It just makes more sense. They don't need to be in the kitchen. Kids, stay out of the kitchen. Now, the original command was, don't touch the burner lest you be burned. Oral tradition and teaching and application finally ends up saying, just stay out of the kitchen. There's no resemblance between that and the first commandment. Now, I'm not saying it's that extreme with the uh, Mishnah or the Midrash, uh, all these different traditions that they write and teaching that they that they collected over the years. I'm not saying it's that extreme, but as we're going to find out, Jesus is pointing out to them that they have drifted away from the original meaning and application of the law. And here's an example. They finally get around to the point saying, look, you can't, they, you're not supposed to harvest your wheat uh, on the Sabbath. All right, you know, that makes sense. Farmers don't go out on the Sabbath and work and harvest your crops. But these disciples were just walking and they took a few heads of grain off of the stock to eat while they were walking. They're not harvesting, they're eating. And yet somebody had interpreted that as harvesting. And so therefore it became, it got to the point where just even taking grains of wheat off and eating them became harvesting, which became a breaking the God's law. And he's telling him, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The disciples were hungry, so they ate. We're going to find out later, Jesus has more applications about what the Sabbath is supposed to look like. But anyway, this ah, this concludes chapter two. Um, good stuff here. I love the story of the lame man lowered through the roof and how Jesus addressed his need primary need of forgiveness. Oh, I wish I could have been back there to talk to that man. I bet he would have a story to tell. All right, well, that's enough for today. God's blessings to you. Uh, next up will be chapter three of Mark. Remember, this is, for all intents and purposes, Peter's gospel. That's, that's the lens I'm looking through this. And one of the questions I'm always asking as I'm going through this is, why would Peter call this important? Why would Peter call that important? That's my lens. All right. Have a great, grand, and glorious day. This is Mr. G. I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself.